exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002. 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, The Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ, and a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company. Well, Phantom fans, this week's special guest is a man who has been here with us several times in the past. and You have heard his impressive bio many times before. He's in the USBC Hall of Fame with five USBC Eagles, 30 PBA regional titles, two gold medals for Team USA, and also he is a hard-hitting bowling journalist with his 11th frame dot com website and i want you all to get your pencils and pens ready because we're going to talk about that when we get going but first of all you know in the past our guest has filled in as co-host on this show and he's turned the tables on me and asked me a lot of great questions about lane conditions that did turn into a series of shows that are archived in a story on his website and for those who follow our show you know that often we look back and talk about greats from the past. Well, we have done it again this week. And to help us with that, here is Jeff Riggles. Hello, Jeff, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Phantom. It's always great to be here, especially when we have a topic like tonight's. So uh, just so awesome. Well, it really is. And it took a special person from to, to, to do all the talking about this, man. And as I mentioned in the opening, before we get into all that, I want you to brag a little bit about your website because we cater to all the bowling fans out there, and they all should know what's going on in your neck of the woods. I mentioned you're a journalist, and you've got a great website that has all kind of information on it. So go ahead and brag, Farts. <laughs> well, I'll just say that it's at uh... – 11frame.com, 11thframe.com, uh, only $199 a month or $19.99 a year, which is $166 a month. Uh, if that's too much for you, boy, I don't know what to say. Um, it can't really get any lower with credit card fees and paying my tech guy and uh, just trying to cover a few expenses to go to tournaments when we can. Um, and uh, I just I cover you know the PBA, PWBA, World Bowling, USBC tournaments, and then uh, also uh, locally uh, some Midwest and Wisconsin tournaments and, and stuff in my hometown here of Madison. I'm going to vouch for the whole thing. It's uh, exciting. 
you got information on there. If I want to know something and I can't find it on the internet, it's about bowling. It's usually on your site. So we're <laughs> going to remind you one more time what that website is before we close the show. But let's get going with today's uh, guest. So, Pards, who are you going to pay tribute to? Well, um, I'm going to pay tribute to one of the last remaining living greats of the great team era. He's the last remaining living Budweiser, uh, Ray Bluth, who I believe is 94 years old now. Uh, In my record's birth date is uh, New Year's Eve 1927. PBA Hall of Famer, USBC Hall of Famer, Missouri, St. Louis, and the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. And, of course, for those who don't know the Budweisers, that was the great team that was headlined by uh, Don Carter and Dick Weber and uh, included Pat Patterson, Tom Hennessy, a few other guys that, that bowled at times as, as uh, you know, they had more than five guys, Don McLaren, uh, Whitey Harris, uh, probably the most famous team in bowling history. Yeah, that took place basically way before the PBA got started. And, in fact, there were a lot of teams bowling back in those days, uh, mainly beer teams and all that. But wasn't uh, Ray uh, kind of involved and instrumental in forming that team? Yeah, um, I I had the the pleasure of the background here for me on why I know a little bit about Ray is that I had two big stories I was working on. One was um, sort of a people who bowled against Don Carter and how great he was um, trying to catalog what he, what kind of a, a you know a, a, an all-time great Don was, and this is when Belmo was going to run down Don's career historical record of 11 major titles, and uh, Don passed away in 2012, and so I but I found Ron Winger, uh, Barry Asher, uh, Ray Carmen Salvino, um, and just talked to them about what kind of a bowler Don was and, and how it was to compete against him, you know, how you would stack him up against Earl and uh, Mark Roth and Walter Ray and now Belmo. And, of course, you know, Dick Weber and the uh, the guys, his peers of the, of that day. Ray was a special part of that interview because he was a teammate to Don and also because he was from St. Louis. And the other story that I was working on, and these were two of the biggest ones I've probably ever written, was the historical um, record of Ray Orff's 890 and how it came to be turned down by the American Bowling Congress. And then Ray actually won a lawsuit against the ABC. Sort of, he, as my story said, he was Glenn Allison before Glenn Allison was Glenn Allison. Um, everything that went through, and that story is on my site as well. And the Ray Orff story, actually, after a suitable amount of time passed, his kids, specifically uh, his sons Richie and Steve, who I know pretty well from bowling, they wanted me to make that story free so anyone could read it. And since they had given me all their files from their father, I uh, I wasn't going to say no to that. It had been, you know, for my subscribers only for several months before that. It might even have been a year. And so I ended up making uh, making that story free. And we're coming up on the 50-year anniversary of Ray's 890. But anyway, that's how I got to do this long interview with Ray. One of the things that he talked about was how the Budweiser's were formed. Before the Budweiser's, uh, Carter, Bluth, Tom Hennessy, as we mentioned, Pat Patterson and Don McLaren were on a team called Missouri Antique. Carter actually and Bluth won the doubles in a tournament in Kansas City, as I related in my story on on, uh, on Carter. And he was telling me about that, and, and then he was telling me about how the team broke up. And Carter and Hennessy actually went to Detroit to join the Fifers and the Strohs, the each on one different team. And Bluth went to Chicago to join the Jackie Cooper team. 
so this was they were all split up before the Budweisers came to be in, in in different cities. And then Bluth returned to St. Louis after a year. Carter would come back after they secured the Budweiser sponsorship. And this is <clears throat> this is a quote from from Ray. Whitey Harris was the captain. Whitey was a police sergeant in the fourth district, and he was a friend of Jim McGuire because of all the security matters around the brewery. McGuire was in charge of manufacturer railway company that shipped all the Budweiser products out of St. Louis and a good friend of Augie Bush, of course, Anheuser-Busch, Augie Bush, the big, one of the big wheels of the family. They got a, that got us an interview with Fleischman Hillier, the company that advertised, they advertised with. So then he went on to say, Whitey and I had a meeting with Mr. Fleischman. We had our scrapbooks and all that kind of stuff that we were going to show off. I don't think we had a dime in our pockets so we went up for the interview and he said, you don't have to show me that stuff. I write it. Whitey was going to ask for $15,000 sponsorship. Now remember $15,000 in the 1950s is a whole heck of a lot of money these days. Um, I mean, you could buy a house for 15,000 back then, a decent house, I would assume. And he goes on to say, Whitey was going to ask for 15,000. And I blurted out it's 25,000. Whitey was sort of shocked when we left the place, but uh, they ended up getting the deal. And the original Budweiser team was Bluth, Harris, Patterson, McLaren, Waylou, and Carter, Billy Waylou. And uh, Dick Weber joined later as Bluth went on to say. He, he, he estimated that uh, value of their annual sponsorship eventually might have reached $150,000 a year counting salaries. Factoring in inflation, I figured out when I did this story a couple of years ago, that would be $1.4 million today. So just imagine that a bowling team getting a sponsorship of 1.4 million, but the Budweiser's were gigantic. I mean, they were household names. Bowling was so big then that, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard even for people who weren't around them. I wasn't around them, but I was around not that long after that to still know, see a little bit about what bowling was to meet Dick and Don and, and talk to people who were, you know, in that heyday then and, and knew how big it was. You know, he went on and on, and I, I, I put a lot more stuff. Obviously, it was a long story about uh, about Don Carter and uh, and everything. But but Ray just told such great stories. And uh, if I could relate one more without going on too long, how Dick Weber came to join the team. Weber had a devastating hook when he first came to St. Louis Blue said, I was running Brentwood bowling lanes, and Whitey Harris was the one who got him on the team. Whitey said he was sending this kid over for me to watch bowl. Dick was only about two years younger than I was, but it was – quote unquote, watching the kid. He came over there and we put him on lanes 11 and 12, which was not an easy pair. He took a couple practice shots and bang, he shot 279. I told Whitey that he looks pretty good to me. And he said he just had a knack for getting that strike. We gave him the name. I think Don might have come up with it, Golden Arm, because he just had a knack for getting that strike when we needed it. Yeah. So. <laughs> he was awesome. You know, I'm going to let you rest your voice for a minute because I want to uh, include one thing. Uh, you mentioned Ray Orff, and, and I'm old enough to remember him, and I'm old enough to remember when it happened. Matter of fact, the other day they had a contest on Facebook. If you didn't know how old you were, how old would you be? And I thought, well, I'm so old. I remember when the Dead Sea was just sick. So that's how old <laughs> I am. Anyways, uh, you mentioned a fella, uh, Don McLaren. Well, he was really good friends with Ray Orff, and when they turned it down, uh, his 890, Orff and uh, McLaren went up to Milwaukee, and uh, remember McLaren throwing a ring at the ABC back then and told them they didn't know anything about bowling because if they ever saw this guy throw one ball, they'd be drooling because 
Orf was fantastic. Oh, yeah. When I wrote that story, I had several people just telling me story after story about what a great bowler Ray was and how many titles he probably would have won if he had devoted himself to the tour. Um, and he did win one and, uh, and then the resident pro as well. But, uh, he, you know, he was a family man and ran a center in St. Louis, the place where he shot 890. And I'd encourage anybody who wants to really see, I spent, I don't even know how many hours it took me more than a year to get around to finally completing the story of the history of the 890. And I talked to a couple guys who were at ABC that, um, Jack Mordini was the main one who was, he wasn't one of the, he was one of the guys that ruled on Glenn Allison's 900, but he wasn't high enough up to rule on Ray's 890, but he gave me some decent background. And I, and with all the files and stuff, I think I pretty much, as you can, if you read the story, you'll kind of see exactly how sort of circumstances came about that. Um, I think anybody that reads it is going to say, ah, oh, boy, it's too bad how it happened. Ray obviously was not cheating. Or you know he was a proprietor there or ran the ran the center. He obviously was not cheating. Um, there's just some weird circumstances and how it came about. And uh, probably that's another one where it would have been better for bowling like Allison's if they had just passed it. But uh, you know that's that's another story from Ray. But uh, I'd encourage anybody. You don't even have to be a subscriber. Just go to 11thframe.com and hit uh, Ray Orr from the search button, and that story should come up. Any bowler that's a bowling fan has got to read it. But uh... You know, I'd never really ever heard of Ray, and he didn't bowl on the tour, but uh, when I was out there, but he qualified for the Firestone because he won the Resident Pro. And I'm thinking, what's this amateur guy who I didn't know, what's, what's he doing in here? And I'll tell you what, he, he was so big and powerful and graceful. Uh, he finished like seventh place in the tournament. What a truck. He threw an absolute truck. If he had yep. bowled the tour, he'd been one of the leading money winners of all time, parts. But let's get back to Ray. <laughs> Ray, Ray Bluth, not only did he help formulate the team, but he was also a pretty good bowler on the lanes too, right? Oh, yeah. I think he's one of those guys that sort of, if he might have been on a different team from the Budweiser's, and he probably would have been the star of the team or one of the stars, but you know, anybody who was going to be a teammate of Dick Weber and Don Carter was always going to sort of be an extra wheel. I mean, those are two of the probably, if you were going to do uh, a Mount Rushmore, I don't know, you'd probably put both of them up there for sure if you chose that era. Um, but, you know, if you had 10 guys, you absolutely would have those two up there. You could sort of be overshadowed just because those two guys were so great. But the thing that I always love is when I was first coming up in bowling and started getting interested in bowling history, the famous one is the Budweiser's 3858, March 12th of 1958. And that was a record that stood for, you know, more than 30 years, probably is next to Allison's 900 might be the most well-known number in uh, in bowling was the 3858. And a little unknown by people who maybe don't dig into that, but the high guy on the Budweiser's that night that night was Ray Bluth. He had 834, 267, 267, 300. He was the only 800 of the five guys in that 3858. He had 33 strikes in that series, which was a record at the time, um, even though he fell short of the 886 that was Allie Brandt's all-time record series. He had more strikes than Brandt, which is interesting, or maybe it was a tie if I'm not mistaken, but uh, Ray had spares in the eighth and ninth frame of his first game, 
And then he left the 8-10 in the ninth frame of his second game. So he had uh, 10 strikes, 11 strikes, 12 strikes with the uh, 300 the last game. And uh, like I said, that record lasted for more than 35 years. Um, the Budweiser's won five national match game championships. Ray actually bowled doubles with Dick Weber. And they won the BPA national doubles four times, finished second twice, and third three times. And that 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 there is just that's only his Budweiser stuff. Yeah, yeah, he was something else. Uh, you know, not only that, but little known, he had some important roles off the lanes too, didn't he? Yep, very much so. Um, uh, probably the most important is that being part of the Budweisers, if they those guys hadn't gone. Now, this is all conjecture, but you can probably talk to somebody like Salvino, and and I've read stuff by, say, Chuck Pisano in some of the files I've seen that also said this, that if the Budweisers hadn't gone with Eddie Elias and PBA, bowling history might have been very different. Now, Ray might not have been that important in that, but Dick and Don most certainly were just because they were such giant names. You know, if, if the Budweisers had elected their members to to be part of the national bowling league instead of the PBA. Well, you know, who knows what bowling might've turned out to be Ray. Also, when they went into the PBA, he was two years. He served as PBA president. He served four years as secretary. And he was also the first vice first and second vice president for four years. And he was also a regional director for two years. You know, he was a member of the tournament committee for eight years and was on the executive board, which is a really important position back then for 15 years. Uh, he was also the president of the St. Louis Bowling Proprietors Association, member of the PBA, ABC, Missouri State, and St. Louis Bowling Hall of Fames, as I, as I mentioned. Um, and if you want to hear Ray, um, some good stuff with Ray, you can go to Google and search and type in Ray Bluth, St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame, and you will find uh, his induction in the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame, which I'm not sure exactly the year, but it wasn't that long ago. They have a real interesting situation or format. Instead of asking or instead of having the guy give a speech, they have the MC sit down with the inductee and ask questions. And obviously, there was a lot of research done into this, and they covered a lot of the stuff we're covered now um, in this thing. And uh, it was very interesting. And I'm sure that was probably an audience that wasn't really a lot of bowlers. Uh, but there they got a little lesson in St. Louis bowling history, which um, is some of the best bowling history in, in our country, of course. Well, you know, we could go on and on and on, but I got to ask you one more question. If you could describe his distinctive style, if you could, would you? Yep, I absolutely will. But I, I, I have to say I, I screwed up. I missed a couple of things in talking about Ray's achievements off the Budweiser team. He was a, he won the ABC Masters, of course, now the USBC Masters in uh, 1959 and was second in 1956. And he also won two PBA Tour titles. So he actually had three PBA Tour titles, counting the Masters. He had the first 300 in match play in the Masters. In his 806, the first three games, 1962 was a record that stood for 24 years. So uh, And he also bowled two 800 series and two 300 games on live television, back in some of the various shows that were a staple of the early years of TV, which I'm sure people have seen, you know, the championship bowlings and those various shows. So, uh, sorry, I missed, missed on those. <laughs> forgot to, forgot to add all that, but Ray was way more than just uh, a cog in the Budweiser's. I mean, he was a PBA and, and ABC masters champion too. So, uh, shouldn't don't want to sell him short. And I think that's what a little bit of bowling history has kind of done 
being that he bowled with, with Dick and Don. And the thing I found out in, in researching for some of this uh, and what I'd known from interviewing Ray is, yes, it's a really distinctive style that you rarely see from bowlers now. Amleto Monicelli, sort of, and one guy more recently that a lot of people might know if they're old like us, Joe Berardi. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Joe always start with the ball pretty much high up there under, sort of under his right eye? Sure did. Uh, he changed a little bit as time went on, but yes. And he also brought the ball back with two hands. But then he, he went to one-handed after a couple of years on tour. Yes, and that's and that's what, the, the minute I saw Ray, immediately I thought Joe Berardi. Because if you look at Ray and see some of these old championship bowling things, you will see uh, you will see him bowling the likes of Carmen Salvino and some of the other greats of that era. And what what struck me immediately is there's Ray and he's lifts the ball up and there he is peering out over the top of the ball, which is kind of under his right eye. And right away I thought, oh, there's Joe Berardi, which was more my era. I can't. I was trying to think. I don't think there's any bowlers that really do that in today's PBA tour that I could think of. So uh, I found that to be to be very interesting to to watch a distinctive style like that, and and of course throwing the power powerful roller that uh, you certainly don't see today, and that that kind of unique re- release that created the full roller. So it was fun to watch a bunch of those videos. Well, I'll say that's for sure. You know, uh, as I said, we could talk for hours about Ray, but he was really a great guy. He still is, I'm sure, but I understand he still goes in the bowl every day. And you said 94 years old. He sets a drawer up, and his son and everybody else runs the bowl. He sits around and reminisces with a bunch of his old buddies uh, most of the day. And I'm sure they got a lot of things they can talk about. But I got to tell you one thing about Ray. Besides being a great guy, when he uh, was on one of my shows a while back, one of my best friends from the early days when me and Billy Hardwick and him were growing up back in the 50s, and you said championship bowling and all these TV shows, this guy loved Ray Bluth. So after I had the show with Ray, this guy said, oh, I, I love that guy. He says, can you give me his phone number? I want to get his autograph. So I says, well, he is a good guy, but, you know, I don't know if you want to bother him. He goes, well, I won't bother him. I'll tell him you're my friend. So he calls him up, and Ray says, yeah, who is this? He says, I'm a friend of Lenny's and Billy Hardwick. He goes, oh, yeah, he says, uh, they were friends, friends, what, what can I do for you? And he says, I, I want an autograph. Okay, okay, give me your address. And about a week later, the mailman came, and it was a pair of Ray Blues bowling shoes that were signed. What a kind of a great guy is that? Wow. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. So, And there's a bunch of stories like that. In fact, we're going to do this again one of these days, Fards. And we're going to talk about a lot of things that people don't know, but they should know. But anyway, give us that address one more time on your website. www.11thframe.com. And that's 11, the numerals, numerals, 11thframe.com. Fantastic. I recommend everybody join up and find out what's going on in the bowling world with Jeff Riggles. So, Phantom fans, the old clock on the wall tells me we're running out of time and I can't believe how quickly the time flies in this show. And probably why they say it's the fastest show in all of sports. But, Jeff, I'm going to give you another minute to close the show. Say whatever you want to say in closing, Barge. You got it. Well, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to to provide a little uh, history here of bowling. I think it's important that we keep this 
sort of stuff alive and people don't forget that there was bowling before the PBA. There was a lot of great bowling before the PBA. And uh, someday we're going to probably have to, somebody younger than us will be doing stuff like this to keep alive the memories of Mark Ross and Marshall Holman and, and that sort of thing. So it's always important to go back and, and find the names of history and tell the stories and, and make sure that folks like that are not forgotten. Well, I sure hope you're right. I would love it for somebody to come along and, and keep this thing going, my friend. There's nothing like history and tradition of everything, including our country. So, Phantom fans, that's going to wrap it up on the show for this week, and hope that you enjoyed it, enjoyed hearing from Jeff Riggles. want to mention that next week we're going to have another exciting guest, and you're going to be surprised when you find out who that one is. So, in closing, I want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling Products, Brad Edelman from the High Roller, and our newest sponsor, Dave Kowalski. He's a member of the Auto Value and Bumper to Bumper Auto Parts stores. So for Phantom Radio, this is the Phantom. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, well, nothing is going right. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon 